Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I cover films of the 1980s, of course, but also films of the 70s and 90s and all the way up till today. In fact, if you want to hear my podcasting work of films of today, you can do so by searching for the Quipster Film Review Podcast wherever you're listening to this right now. Just remember that Quipster is spelled with a W instead of a U. Also, you can find all of the links to where you can find me on social media and online at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today, we're going to be continuing on with the third and the final of the films in which there are shared dreams and shared thoughts and how that incorporates into the main plot of the respective films. Dreamscapes, of course, and what other film would I do here to round out the trilogy but cover the film that's actually called Dreamscape. It came out in 1984. It's one of the first PG-13 rated films. I think it was second to come out in theaters. It may have been the first one to actually get the PG-13 rating. It does have violent sexual situations and disturbing images. The runtime is an hour and 39 minutes. The main star is Dennis Quaid with supporting roles going to Kate Capshaw, Max von Sydow, Christopher Plummer, David Patrick Kelly, Eddie Albert, and George Went. Joseph Rubin is the director, and the screenplay is credited to Joseph Rubin, along with David Lowry and Chuck Russell. Now, long before people were interacting in the virtual reality slumber in films like The Cell and The Matrix, there was this modestly overlooked sci-fi teaser of a film that delved into the possibilities of one person interacting with another in their dreams. This was a pretty fascinating idea for its time, maybe a little bit before its time during its release in 1984. So, perhaps so new that the makers of this film seem to think that we wanted more action and more romance instead of getting bored by all of the details of the process itself. Maybe that was true back then in the post-Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. era, but you can't really blame Dreamscape for at least trying to inject some intelligence, simplistic though it may be as presented here, into otherwise typical fare. Now, Dennis Quaid, as I mentioned, is the star. He plays this psychically gifted man named Alex Gardner. Alex squanders most of his gifts. He plays the horses. He takes advantage of the ladies with his charm, his good looks, and his ability to read minds. This is a fact that doesn't go unnoticed by this federal program, which is looking for someone just like him. It seems that the government has developed a system where a person can project him or herself into the dreams of another to guide that dream, to shape it until whatever anxiety or nightmares that the person who is doing the dreaming gets resolved. Now, there is a bit of trouble in the process. A few of the subjects of that dream experiment have died, and that calls forth the notion that if you die in your dreams, you die in real life. And so things get a little bit dicier when it is the president of the United States, who was played by Eddie Albert. He's brought in because he keeps having nightmares about nuclear war, so terrifying that he wants to go to Geneva to begin the process of disarmament. This is an idea that doesn't sit well with everyone in the government or in the Dreamscape program itself. So more danger, intrigue there. Now, although this main premise of dream sharing is still quite fascinating to make this film still entertaining today, I think you have to overlook some pretty dated special effects and some of that very 80s music in order to enjoy Dreamscape properly today. This was, even for the 1980s, a very small-budget sci-fi fantasy. It did have aspirations that probably exceeded the funds that were necessary to make it truly come alive in a big way on the big screen. And you can see from the cost-cutting and the dark look of the film, you know, when you, whenever you have cuts in lighting and you replace an orchestral score with more of a simplified, synthesized score, and here from the normally reliable Maurice Jarre, 
who would have normally have worked with an orchestra if the budget were there for it. So this is a film that definitely had a very low budget on its mind. And even with the cost-cutting aspects, there are still some nifty results for the film. You have a stop-motion snake man that really meshes pretty well with the live-action aspects, even if it does retain an artificial look to it. The dreamscape nightmares are really wonderfully designed in the surreal sets and some of the vivid color schemes that are employed. So the creative brains behind dreamscape, they may have had more notions to craft a more horrific tale, but there are some Spielbergian influences that obviously ran too strong at the time in the early to mid-1980s. And the end result is more scenes of humor, less of horror, and of getting it on with Spielberg's babe, of course, Kate Capshaw. The film also meshes with a genre of political paranoia for some extra thrills, as well as the rampant fears of nuclear war that were very prevalent in the early 80s, a subject that I've been talking about in quite a few prior episodes. But still, there is enough disturbing imagery to frighten the squeamish. And this is, as I mentioned, one of the first films to have the PG-13 rating on it. It had initially been rated rated R, and then it got appealed when they started to employ the PG-13 rating in effect. However, like much of Steven Spielberg's work, there is a tendency to cross a lot of genres here and play for as wide an audience as possible. So the edginess of the film that could have been there is smoothed over, and they inject a lot of romance and humor at least as much as they can during the proceedings while still getting the main plot across. Now, Dreamscape is a product of its era in many ways. You have Eddie Albert here. He's cast as a very Ronald Reagan-esque president of the United States, although he doesn't have the dyed hair that would have made it maybe a little bit too obvious that they were going for Reagan as the representative of the POTUS. It also taps into the rampant fears of the 1980s of nuclear annihilation that results from another world war happening, especially as this very kindly but not always in command president is being influenced behind the scenes by those who seem to want to ramp up tensions and also force the world into a more perilous place. Now, in addition to Eddie Albert, Dreamscape greatly benefits from a supporting cast that lends the ambitious genre mix some credibility. Max von Sydow as the head of the experiment, and you also have Christopher Plummer as the scheming CIA agent. They offer familiarity and some gravitas in roles that maybe don't particularly require performers of their caliber, yet they still lend that gravitas. Dennis Quaid here as the main star is very charismatic and spirited enough to engage as the hero. He's rascally enough to keep the film pretty light and fun. And even when the storyline goes into some very dark and horrific places, it still remains in the realm of fun. David Patrick Kelly is a very curious choice as the foil to the hero, mostly because he's not really a known quantity as the rest of the cast had been. But he does perform pretty well in that he's unnerving when necessary, and he continues his psycho quality in yet another film, if you remember him playing psychos in films before. And interestingly, there's a rumor out there that Kevin Costner was going to be cast in the role, but he passed on the project because it wasn't a starring role. Kate Capshaw here is arguably the weakest link. She offers, you know, those eye candy qualities and some adequate acting abilities, but her performance here maybe is a little bit less interesting than the others that are in the cast, and her role is probably the most superfluous. Maybe that's why. Capshaw's appearance had 20th Century Fox actually pushed the release date. It was supposed to come out in April of 1984. They pushed it to August because they wanted to capitalize on her possible popularity because she was the co-star of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom that was coming out in May. And the marketing for Dreamscape even changed as well. The poster for Dreamscape, if you happen to see it, it is definitely a Temple of Doom type vibe. It felt like Indiana Jones, even though the main story really has nothing to do with these kinds of action adventure films. 
Now, in a much smaller role, George Went, of course, most people know him as Norm from Cheers. He plays a horror novelist named Charlie Prince. Maybe that name is a riff on Stephen King. He ends up credibly giving information to the hero of the conspiracy beneath some of the goings-on at the lab and the danger in letting the bad guys succeed in those plans. Not a big part of the film, but a pretty important one for giving the information to us in the audience as to what nefarious deeds are being committed behind the scenes. Now, the influence of Dreamscape is often maybe overstated by the cult fans that enjoy it, but at the same time, it's also understated by, I think, the world at large. Now, when you watch this film, there's really not a lot of doubt that there were a lot of interesting ideas that were going on in films that day. Wes Craven, he must have actually watched this film during the filming phase of his most popular film in his career, A Nightmare on Elm Street, that came out that same year because it features... A lot of similar themes there, similar premises, and there's even the resemblance in certain aspects of the villain. The psychotic personality, a troubled past, killing a victim in the dream means killing them in reality, shape-shifting dream controls, blades that seem to emanate from one of the hands, very much like Freddy Krueger in that way. You'll see a lot of similarities. In fact, Craven had a hard time finding a studio because this project was going on that had very similar features. The Cell, the Jennifer Lopez movie, also builds its world of horror around an idea that is almost identical to the Dreamscape project, but it too goes much more for horror and gore in the dream sequences, and and much more so than Dreamscape ended up doing for a PG-13 release. And The Matrix recycles a lot of ideas that you find in this film, maybe more subconsciously. I wouldn't say it's an out-and-out ripoff, because The Matrix really had a lot of influences in its making, but... From the shared alternate realities, the dying in the alternate makes you die in reality, the structure of the dreamscape machine, especially the seating that's involved and the ever-present agents, and the notion of using martial arts to make it more cool within that dream realm is very similar to what you would find in The Matrix. Now, I would say that dreamscape definitely merits a look, at the very least, for Those who are strong fans of any of the previously mentioned films, or if you're just a lover of good old-fashioned pulp sci-fi fantasy, I think you're going to get some mileage here. I would not say that Dreamscape is a great film by any stretch, but I do think it has great concepts. And while it's on, it definitely has enough to keep audiences wrapped in attention for the duration. It is, after all, playing everything for entertainment value. The screenplay is ambitious. It originally started at 20th Century Fox when the novel by Roger Zelazny, which was known as the Dream Master, a.k.a. He Who Shaves, it had been purchased. It had been optioned to make into a movie. But then that screenplay went into a variety of changes to make it more contemporary and more broadly appealing. And then the final script, which is credited to the director Rubin, which was his last as a screenwriter, David Lowry, who would write Maybe the weakest of the Star Trek films, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And also Chuck Russell, who came to prominence as a director of such films as The Mask, etc. But he would go on to co-write and direct, just a couple of years later, a dreamscape-like film called A Nightmare in Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, further tying the two properties here, Dreamscape and A Nightmare in Elm Street. Now, even if Dreamscape may not hold up as well in the subsequent decades after its release, it does have an incredibly cool concept of fights among powerful psychics in the dream realm that could have resulted in more imaginative sequels that maybe could have injected better special effects if this had been a bigger box office hit. It only took in $12 million. It never really rose above ninth place in any of its weeks of release. But if its reported $6 million budget is to be believed, it seems like a really good film for only $6 million, it wasn't a failure because it actually made a little bit of money. 
Now, while Dreamscape may likely be forever overshadowed by some of the films that took that main premise to a much more serious level, maybe even a more entertaining level, for the ones who are in the know, I think Dreamscape is going to forever be that one that entered their fantasies and changed their perceptions of what people can do in those fantasies. So I'm going to give Dreamscape three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means I do recommend it for those people who like this kind of movie. If you're a big fan of not only films of the 1980s, and why would you be listening to this podcast if you weren't? Good old pulpy sci-fi Movies that don't necessarily have to take themselves as overly serious, even if the film is not necessarily trying for campy laughs. There's a lot here that is entertaining, at the very least, even if it would kind of fall apart if you took it at all seriously. So three stars out of four goes to Dreamscape from 1984. And as far as next week, what I'm going to be covering, we're going to get into a new trilogy. Actually, maybe a little bit more than a trilogy, because I'm going to be covering another film from 1984, one that I mentioned in this very podcast because it's a natural follow-up to Dreamscape. And I'm talking about Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. We're going to start the Nightmare on Elm Street series. That film and most of its sequels took place in the 1980s, so we're going to be covering those here on Around the World in 80s Movies. For next week, if you like to keep up with the films before I get to the reviews, check out A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984. So until next time, thank you everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Thank you.